So I'd like to welcome you to Spirit Rock Meditation Center um, and <coughs> applaud you a little for showing up for this day long. It's not the most um, obviously sexy topic that you could choose to spend a Saturday looking at and exploring. And in the Bay Area, as we know, there are multitudes of things that one can do with one's free time. So to choose to come and explore the topic of dependent origination um, takes a different kind of mindset. So you're my kind of people. So I hope we have a, a good day together looking at this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just to say a, a little bit about myself, my name is Sally Armstrong. I've been a, a teacher here at Spirit Rock for 10 years or more, and previously to that I actually worked here. I worked here um, full-time and part-time for many years. Um, so I've been involved with the center for a long time. And in my um, movement into teaching, one of the things I've always had a passion for is the um, traditional Buddhist teachings as represented by the Pali Canon and wanting to make that accessible and available to people. So it's, it's been a big part of what I've put my energy into as a teacher. So I've been involved with a program called the Dedicated Practitioners Program. That's a program for um, advanced students who've done a lot of retreat and want to further explore the Buddhist teachings. And uh, I'm actually just finishing the third round of that and looking at beginning a fourth round in uh, April of 2011. In that program, we do things like study dependent origination and really look at it very experientially. And I've also been involved in um, trying to develop a curriculum so that people really get a sense of being on a path and that there is a development that they can um, experience in their practice that's really very uh, logical and is supported by the teachings and the practices and um, offerings that we have here at Spirit Rock. So this day long is actually kind of an uh, outcoming of that program and encourage you to pick up at the back if you don't have one yet already, uh, this little brochure we put together called Paths, of a Paths for Awakening that describes this sense of an unfolding of a path and how day long like this might fit into that and in invite you to further offerings that we have here at Spirit Rock. If you're interested in this kind of teaching, there are other things that you can explore both here in the, the day-long community center, but also in the retreat area. Um, <clears throat> for example, later this year, I'm going to do a retreat called Living Dharma, where we take some of the core teachings of the Buddha and explore them in a, a study experiential kind of mode. It's not a silent retreat. It's a much more interactive kind of retreat. So just to let you know that if you're interested in this kind of teaching, there are things that you can um, practice. There are um, offerings here at Spirit Rock and obviously other places that will support that interest because I think it's essential, really is. So let's just start with arriving here today. Is anyone here their first time at Spirit Rock? Great, you're all old hands, and that's helpful because this is not going to be an easy topic. For how many of you is this a fairly new topic, dependent origination? Don't have much familiarity with it. Good, okay. So mainly fairly new. What I'll be doing today is pretty much an overview. This, this is one of the core teachings of the Buddha that we could spend years going through because you'll see as we go into it that virtually every other teaching that he talked about in his 45 years of teaching can be included and covered in this teaching on dependent origination. So it's, I really see it like a springboard. And whatever you get interested in, you can put in the context of dependent origination and also explore uh, more and deeper. So what I want to do today um, is uh, give a number of talks on this theme, where I'll look at it in the, the big picture, the context of where it fits in the Buddha's teachings, in our lives and in our practice, and then go through it in quite, well, it's still be skimming the surface, each one of these sections, these links that can uh, make up the pen and origination you could spend a lot of time with, but go through those so we get to have some kind of understanding of what he's talking about. 
We'll have some sitting meditation that'll be guided with the intention of looking specifically at this teaching and how we might experience and understand it. We'll do walking meditation. During the walking breaks and at lunchtime, I will be offering sign-up interviews if you're interested in talking to me about the practice today and this teaching or really anything that's up for you in your practice life. And so to do that, we've put a sign-up sheet um, outside the door of the room where I'll be doing the interviews. And that'll be in an office as you walk out of this building over to your left. You walk in that door and turn to your left and there'll be a sign-up sheet. And because I don't know how many people will want them or how long they might take, <coughs> I f usually figure about 10 minutes just to check in with, with people. So in a walking period, I might get through three people, um, do some at lunchtime and some in another walking period. So it won't be a time, won't have chance for all of you to sign up, but just sign up if you're interested. And then we'll kind of see, you'll see where you might fit in the flow of things. You, if you're at the end of the list, the interview might be in the afternoon. But, and once you've had an interview, just cross your name off so the person knows that, uh, the next person knows they're next on the list. And uh, if the door is shut, means I'm seeing someone. If the door is open and you're next on the list, please come in and, and we can chat. I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that um, when we get to the walking period, but just to let you know that's possible. And then I want to have this be as interactive a day as possible, so really open to you asking questions at any time, and I'll be asking you questions to get your responses to the theme of practice. And in the afternoon, we'll also do an experiential exercise, so we'll, you'll, I'll be asking you to actually share with others your understanding of this process and, and do something quite dynamic. So um, there'll be a, a range of things that we'll do throughout the day. <clears throat> and I think in some ways the weather is kind of on our side. I always know if it's a really sunny day, the numbers drop because it's so pleasant to be outside. Hopefully it'll be um, just right. Uh, not, not too cold and windy and rainy and so we can go outside, but uh, it's just gray enough that it feels good to be sitting in here and studying this teaching. So hopefully when you came in, you all uh, received a handout. If anyone doesn't have a handout, I presume there's more at the back. Anyone not have a handout? We'll be looking at this throughout the day, so that's going to be necessary for you. So to begin talking about this teaching. The Pali word is paticca samuppada, and it's translated in different ways on the sheet that has the circle, the side that has the circle on it. I put a few of the different translations on there. To find my copy. Thank you. The one I just tend to use is because of the one I was first introduced, um, and it makes sense to me, is dependent origination. Some people call it dependent co-arising or conditioned co-production. But hopefully you get a sense that what it's talking about is the interrelated nature of our experience and, by extension, everything. That things arise in conjunction with other things, dependent on other things, and there's a cause and effect or a conditioned nature to this teaching, to this understanding. Well, and it's really it's saying it's not a theory, it's what we see if we look directly at our experience. Just by its very nature, it's a somewhat complex teaching. I always say if a list goes up to about four, I can remember it. Once it gets to five, I have to write it down, and beyond that, you know, it took me ages to remember the Eightfold Path or anything that has a number of things in it. This has got 12, so, and each one of them has a lot of subsets. So a very complex teaching, but its essence is very simple, and I hope that you'll see that as we look at it more um, throughout the day. What the Buddha is doing in this teaching is really diving into his core teaching of the Four Noble Truths, 
And if you're familiar with Buddhism, you'll know that this is really considered the central teaching. When he, after he awakened and he, he gave his first teaching, what he taught was the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths starts with the truth that there is suffering in life. Inherent in having a mind and a body, there'll be suffering. Suffering of illness, suffering of old age, suffering of death, suffering of loss, all kinds of suffering. And then he, in the Four Noble Truths, talks about the cause of suffering, the possibility to, to end suffering, and the path to that ending. This teaching dives into that. It's kind of like a wormhole and looks at that first and second noble truths and expands them and really says, what's happening here? Why do we get caught in suffering again and again? Understanding that all of us, every being, human and non-human, wants to be happy, doesn't want to suffer, yet it does seem to be inherent in existence is a realm and a range of suffering. And I should um, step back a bit and say this word that I'm using, suffering, is a translation of a Pali word, dukkha. And many of you may have heard that word. Um, sometimes it's best to use it untranslated because my understanding of the word is so, um, it's so complex and multifaceted multi-layered that one English word doesn't convey the meaning. And so you'll hear people translate it differently. Um, some people translate it as dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness, stress, anguish. Um, and if you, I've, I've also read lists of all of the different definitions or translations of dukkha, and it's about 30 or 50 words. So it, it really covers the whole range of experience from the most um, subtle sense of dis-ease, uh, unsatisfactoriness, just really subtle levels of things not being quite right, to the deepest and most profound types of suffering that we can experience, the suffering of loss, of grief, death, um, all of the, the, the real pain that we see manifest, whether it's in our lives, lives of people we know, but certainly throughout the world. It covers this whole range of experience. Sometimes we can hear this word and think, well, that's kind of gloomy. You know, we're going to have a day all about suffering and doom and gloom and death and dismay and despair. But it's really important to remember that it, it's... Um, it covers a whole range of meanings, as I said, from, from those kinds of very deep grappling with the, the problems of existence to this very subtle, just sense of dissatisfaction, dis-ease, things not being quite right. But always, whenever the Buddha talked about suffering, and it's inherent in this teaching today, he talked about it in the context of the end of suffering. And so we really need to understand that this teaching on suffering is not suggesting, recommending, putting us in the place of just sitting in suffering. It's always we go into suffering to find a way out of suffering and to see that actually turning towards this reality, this experience of suffering is the way to, to release it, to find freedom and happiness in that very experience through our acceptance and understanding of it. And again, this teaching will unfold today through our understanding of why we experience suffering, what causes it. With that real wisdom, that deep understanding, there's a potential of totally unwinding that movement, that tendency, that habit pattern of creating and experiencing suffering. So just want that to be in there as I, because I'll say, be saying this word suffering a lot today, and I want you to hold it in that context of the, the breadth of its meaning in this translation of the Pali word dukkha, and also that it's always in reference to ending suffering. That we look at suffering, we open to suffering, we, we um, explore the whole realm of its arising and its passing, so we understand it and we find a way to end suffering whether that ending is momentary and a releasing in this very moment and finding some degree of um, well-being and contentment, or the ultimate unbinding, the ultimate awakening that the Buddha himself experienced.
So this teaching on dependent origination, even though the first uh, teaching he gave after his awakening was of the Four Noble Truths, when you read a description of the Buddha's awakening, what he describes is penetrating into this dependent arising. He, there's a long description of how, and this is because this was his worldview and understanding, he saw all his previous lives in all of these different manifestations of human and animal um, with different mind states and experiences and all of the things that he, he, the wholesome qualities that he cultivated and also all the suffering that he had. And he just saw that arising and passing. He saw it for himself. He saw it for every being in the cosmos. And out of that, he just saw so clearly how every being wants to be happy and not to suffer, but are constantly perpetuating the things that do cause suffering. And he really saw how we need to unwind that. We need to change that patterning. And his penetration into the possibility of letting go of the roots of the causes of suffering led to his awakening. I don't know if any of Others of you, did you watch the uh, Life of the Buddha documentary on TV the other night? Only a few. Oh, it'll probably be repeated. It's a new documentary narrated by Richard Gere, two-hour um, documentary. It was pretty good. It wasn't great. And, it, you know, I was really excited to see, see the Life of the Buddha on, well, mainstream TV. KQED is a pretty narrow audience, but yes? I just wanted to say you can watch. Oh, the whole thing's online. Great, thank you. Yeah, um, to see it, you know, that message being put out to uh, a huge audience, and it was good, but it, it just missed some opportunities to really give some teachings because the Buddha's life wasn't about his life; it was about what he awoke to. That's what he wanted to leave as a as a um, what's the word, as, a, as a, ben, a benefit for humanity is not some story, but really the possibility of freedom. And they touched on it. It was great, but um, it could have had a lot more in there. But what they focused on a lot was his search for a way out of suffering. They had a lot about his early life and then this quest where he spent about six years doing the most um, extreme and austere practices and showed a lot of this that's called the emaciated Buddha, because at one point he was living on a grain of rice a day or something, and he said he could pull his hair out, and if he touched, put his finger on his, his navel, he could touch his backbone. Um, so he was really exploring suffering, because the belief at that time was if you um, tortured the body enough, it would let go in some ultimate way and the spirit or the Atman would become free. And he, was, he just pushed himself to the limit with that. But it came to some point where he saw it wasn't working. I mean, he had done everything it was possible to do in that direction and it still wasn't working. So he took some rice milk from a young girl who was passing by uh, named Sujata. Actually, my husband and I just did a pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy sites in India this past fall. It was quite an amazing experience. And um, there's a huge stupa now to Sujata to commemorate this expression of generosity. Um, and he took some sustenance and realized that it wasn't about torturing the body or torturing the mind. He remembered a time in his youth where he had naturally and spontaneously uh, gone into what we call jhana or absorption, the mind in a space of deep stillness and remembered the sublime nature of that experience and, and the actual pleasure of that, but he saw it was a wholesome pleasure. So he knew that was the direction he had to go and from that sat down and made this determination to awaken. Um, had this amazing experience, as I said, looking at all his past lives and just seeing this, the... Um, ubiquitousness of suffering and through his clarity, through his deep penetrating of the roots of suffering, of greed, aversion and delusion, he was able to free his mind from those roots. Went on and um, began to teach and as I said taught for 45 years after that. The Buddha's teachings actually in English 
fill 27 volumes. I, I think that's probably longer than my hands are outstretched if you stack them all side by side. So we have an enormous amount of what we understand to be his teachings. Of course, in his era, the um, teachings, they, they weren't writing them down. It was actually considered safer to commit them to memory, that memory was more reliable than whatever they were writing on because, as you know, paper doesn't last and they were writing on palm leaf or something and it dissolved in a few years. And actually having a community of people commit something to memory had a great deal of resonance because if one person forgot, another would remember. So for 500 years they were written down, I mean, so that they were transmitted orally until they were written down. And it's another reason why the Buddha loved lists, why he said, there's one of this and two of this and three of this and four of this and five of that. It's because if you know there's a list of five or seven or eight and you only get up to six, you've got to remember the next two. And the same, it's again, with this teaching, there's a reason why it has this structured format. It's impossible, of course, to delineate with 12 separate facets the complexity of the human experience. But as, you know, to actually convey a teaching, one has to attempt to do this. So the Buddha made these lists in this, this list as well as his, his many other lists. So we had maps. So we had some guidance on the path. We knew where to look or what to pay attention to. And as I said, if you, you know, got up to 11, there's one more you need to remember. So it was out of this um, evolution of the teachings being an oral tradition. One of the early teachings that he gave was a teaching on the, the Satipatthana Sutta, on the Satipatthana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And this became the essence of what we practice here at Spirit Rock. And its key is mindfulness. It's turning our attention to this experience of mind and body and looking at it in these four discrete areas of the body, of uh, feeling tone, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the mind, and then a, a more complex list of looking at our experience through the lens of the Dhamma. But the key of it is mindfulness. And this is part of what I think they really missed out on conveying in, in the teaching, in the, the TV series the other night, was really the power and importance of knowing what's happening. Now, we're all sitting here, and I'm sure you've all meditated somewhat, so you know what I'm talking about, but we could bring someone off the street, and they would say, well, of course I know what's happening. You know, I'm aware, I'm looking around, but any of you that have practiced meditation know there are levels and depths that we can develop mindfulness to that reveal in um, brilliant detail this experience we call being human. And that our idea of being mindful that we have when we're, as the Buddha would say, an untutored worldling, is so superficial. This penetrating mindfulness that connects with experience and knows that it's connecting with experience, knows what it's looking at. This is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. So we want to stay um, aware of that as we look in the at the complexity of this teaching, that at the heart of it is mindfulness, and that at each part of the link, what is key is mindfulness. So we'll keep coming back to that. But what the Buddha did, again, on the night of his enlightenment and all throughout his subsequent teachings, is take this present moment with a wakeful attention. And that means, you know, as I said, mindfulness isn't just being aware, it's knowing that you're aware. It has this kind of reflective attitude about our experience. So it's sort of, you're mindful of being mindful is really what's happening. So he took this kind of awareness and used it to turn back to his past experiences. In his case, he looked back thousands and eons, endless previous lifetimes. We don't have to do that. We can just look back a few minutes or the earlier this morning or you know, a few days ago and just see this unfolding. And what he looked for was patterns. So sometimes when we hear this teaching on mindfulness, it's, the emphasis is so much on being in the present moment, it's like forget past and future. 
Well, yes, that is important, but it's not the full picture. Mindfulness is only helpful if it's, if it's being practiced in a context, and that context brings wisdom in. So the Buddha looked back at these past lives, these past experiences, and saw this patterning, saw that when he had unwholesome thoughts, unskillful thoughts, thoughts of greed, aversion, and delusion, he ended up suffering and causing suffering to those around him. When he looked back and saw he lived a life or had moments of, with thoughts of generosity or kindness, compassion, wisdom, that what evolved out of that was wholesome, was beneficial for himself and for others. And so he clearly saw that in, in extreme depth. I'm just you know, painting the very simplistic vic- picture of it here. From that, he realized, oh, I can not completely control or determine the future because there are many things that influence our experience. It's not just all internal, a lot of external things as well. But what is um, paramount is my relationship to my experience. And if I cultivate thoughts of kindness, of compassion, of generosity, of clarity, it's likely that what will be predominant in my experience will be a sense of well-being and contentment, basically a sense of freedom. This is what is at the heart of this teaching, is just looking at this unfolding and seeing when we don't see clearly This is where we get caught, and we get caught in suffering. When we change that, change any part of that dynamic, then a whole different outcome is possible. But it has to be done with this kind of referential understanding. Oh, I see this patterning. When I act in this way, this is what comes back to me. When I let go, and it's often counterintuitive. You know, in Buddhism, so much is counterintuitive. We let go to receive. We, we, we um, turn away from suffering. To, that's not counterintuitive. I had a few examples. I've forgotten them. Uh, but it, there's so many times where you, just, you sit still to understand everything. Instead of going out and you know, trying to figure things out, we, we just let things settle and look very quietly and peacefully. So he considered this teaching on dependent origination his actually most profound and a unique teaching. He actually said something like, one who sees the Dharma sees dependent origination. One who who sees dependent origination sees the Dharma. It was so central. If there was one, we often, you know, when you hear glibly about Buddhism, it's the Four Noble Truths, which is often badly translated as life is suffering. The Buddha never said anything like that. He just said, look, there is suffering. He he might have, you know, suffering is part of the human experience, but he didn't say, you know, it's all suffering. He was called the happy one. It was about ending suffering. And it's not just a theory. It came out of his direct experience, and we can know this too. And hopefully this is what we'll see as we look through it in, um, in the, the uh, day today. Because what he saw, again, people wandering around confused, feeling a victim, feeling helpless in their lives. You know, that question, how, have you ever had, how did I end up here? You know, in a mind state, in a place, you've driven somewhere and all of a sudden you realize you've, you've got, arrived and you have no memory of being in the car or whatever you, however you got there. Or in some mind state and you realize you're just irritable or angry or frustrated or sad. And it's like, where, why? How? This is the Buddha's answer to this question. And it's, it's talking about how everything we experience is conditioned. It doesn't arise completely independent of every other thing. So it's a whole process of cause and effect. But the thing that's important to remember is um, it's very complex. He's never saying, oh, A then always goes to B. It's, if this, it's always like that. It's just a tendency. But tendencies matter. Tendencies are important in our experience. So we can see this. It's not, again, an obscure theory. 
in some ways, these teachings are so obvious, it's kind of like, why bother to think about them? But what makes a difference is if we really turn our mind to them and look at how they apply, actually apply the wisdom that we have. All of us have this wisdom already. We're bright, intelligent people. But somehow this denial button gets turned on, this, 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 you know, what, what's the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But we do that, don't we? We just think we haven't gotten it right yet. We got it right, then we'd find the way to happiness. So we just have to look at a complex thing like the weather to see how conditioned things are. I mean, all of the causes that made yesterday such a beautiful sunny day, and today, whatever it is, you know, cloudy, a little bit of rain, and it's the jet stream, and El Nino, and the time of day, and the time of season, and the physical area that you live in, where the elevation, whether it's, you know, near the ocean, where we have fog, all of these things have to come together, and any one of those changing will lead to a different result. The Buddha was saying this same process happens for us internally. And so we can kind of look at the big picture and say the weather, or we can, like a meteorologist or a climatologist might do, and look at all of the different things that go to make that up. And as they can do now, it's still not perfect, and you see how complex things like the weather are, and I think a human experience is even more complex, is predicting. You know, they can only predict seven days out or whatever. Beyond that, they, they keep saying, can't really know. Anything could change. It's much the same way with us. But these predictions do have some basis. We can make some kind of prediction. And just as the weather has all these facets to it. So does our human experience. And you can really see how we create our world from all of these bits of experience. You know, if you look at a whole lifetime, infinite bits of experience, but even from today, even from a few days ago, we look out into the world and we select bits of reference points to constellate a sense of self what media we listen to, what newspaper we read, um, that, and that affects our state of mind, and out of our state of mind, we only want to hear what's, what's, what reinforces what we're already experiencing. You only have to look at certain news stations to see how this model works, where you know if people listen to a certain kind of news, it creates a worldview. And all they're hearing is what reinforces that worldview. And anything that is contrary to that, like the truth, um, <laughs> doesn't get in. And it's, it's just amazing to see how solid that can become. It's the same patterning. And so we make this story. Again, you've probably done it already today. As soon as you got up, there was a sense of, coming here today. Maybe you hadn't made up your mind and there was that, you know, should I, should I or shouldn't you? What the weather's going to be like? Could I go for a walk? Should I come here? You know, and if you were late, that sense of rushing. And when you're rushing, ev doesn't it seem like everyone is in your way? Mm -hmm. You know, everyone is driving too slowly. And so there's that whole sense of an experience, a world you've created out of selecting experience. If you'd woken up with a sense of contentment and well-being and had a clear idea, you know, that you were coming here and had enough time to, to get here and it didn't feel rushed, everything seemed quite pleasant. And you walk in here to this hall and are very happy to be here. And look around and think, it's very pleasant here at Spirit Rock. I sometimes look around and think, this is a bunch of seven trailers that we stuck together 20 years ago that had a lifespan of five years and we haven't replaced them yet. And I can get very unsatisfied with this experience of sitting here in this hall. It's all about what we bring to it, the story that we tell ourselves. But through that story, we create this world and we believe it to be true. We believe it to be the truth. And we're always surprised when other people feed us information and then they don't, they don't share our view. You know, they think this hall is beautiful with its 
funky, you know, plastic sheets that don't fit properly and the, you know, the leaks that it's had. And, you know, I just know so many problems that we've had with this hole. For you, it might be delightful. We bring a different worldview. The, what the Buddha says is, wake up and see, this is what you're doing. Instead of just living in that and assuming that it's the truth, that it's correct, Look and see what's actually happening. And this model is looking and seeing what's happening. So this is what we'll go through as we um, look at the links later today. So what we start to see as we um, look at this process is, oh, sorry, yes? Um, is it appropriate to ask Yes, please, sorry. I'd, Could you like hone in? Because I, um, I just really want to know this. Yeah, good question. So the, the basic question is what's dependent and what's originating? What's dependent is everything, but it's sort of the past. It's what brought us to this moment, and it's originating a new whatever, idea, view, experience. So my dependent stuff of that story I just told is my... What is it, Edward? 20 year? How long has this building been here? 91, I think we put them up. Uh, 20 year history with this building and all of the experiences of it leaking and not being hot, too hot, too cold, you know, stuffy. So all of that is the past. And it's a whole series of conditions and events and experiences, but it's past. It can't be changed now. It come into this present moment and out of that history, I originate a relationship to this whole that ha has all of that in it. So the past is the dependent Yes. Part. And the origination is what we're, and that's why some of the translations are de dependent co-arising. And it's really saying there's all of this um, habitual stuff from the past, whether it's, you know, whatever level, mind, body, external, internal, internal, in this moment, it arises, with that co-arises, this next moment that creates, and I was just getting to this, creates a new, a new relationship. So it's always changed. It's not saying it's static, you know, that this arises and then it's fixed. It's like this is happening all the time. It's arising and your dependent co-arising is, you know, different from mine every moment. So it's really, it's the past coming together with this moment and creating a new reality. And that causes suffering? It can do. Okay. It doesn't have to, okay. but it, it definitely has the tendency to if we're not bringing wisdom to it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, good. So this is, this is kind of exactly where I was getting to, but because what I was about to say is what this teaching shows us is the possibility and the importance of the choices we make. And the reality is we're making choices all the time. M multiple choices, moment by moment, whether we move, blink, you know, what we turn, to breathe, even breathe, you know, we're not going to sit here and stop breathing, but you know, we often, and sometimes it's subliminal, we're just doing it automatically, but often we'll choose to take a breath, deeper breath, um, even the thoughts, we mightn't see them as we're not making active choices. A lot of these choices are, are very subtle, but we're making choices. What we pay attention to, and again, in my story about how we relate to this room, um, it depends what you pay attention to, whether you pay attention to the flowers and the beautiful works of art or the plastic ceiling depends on how you relate to this room. So we start to see the importance of choices. And this leads to, into another whole set of teachings that I'm not going to have time to go into today, but that of karma. Karma, and this wheel is really, a depict, again, it's explicating the Four Noble Truths. It's also an explication of karma. Karma is this teaching that 
our actions have consequences. Actions done with intentions have consequences. So this, again, we'll get back to this a bit later, but really the importance of choice, of perception. One of the things that we're choosing is what to pay attention to. Again, like the media that we even, you know, what dial we choose to turn the television to, what newspaper we choose to read. But even more subtly than that, in any experience, depending on our mood, our character type, we'll choose to pay attention to different things. Bringing awareness to this shows us the importance of um, making choices that lead more to happiness rather than suffering. What this does then is let us become an active participant in our experience instead of a helpless victim. As I said before, where we often have the feeling, how did I get here? You know, I'm again, you know, angry with my sister-in-law, or you know, I'm again feeling frustrated in this uh, situation at work, and we just really don't have a sense of how that happened. This is describing that if we bring wisdom to it. So the, really the Buddha's teaching again and again puts this onus on us to wake up all the time. It's not just, you know, we wake up once and everything's figured out. It's always waking up and always being an active participant in our process and really seeing the impact of the choices we make. So... The, the traditional way of looking at um, this teaching, lost my sheet again. To step back a bit, the traditional way of looking at this teaching is what's called the three lifetime model. And if you look at the sheet with the circle on it, the outside, um, links are how this is currently described. I mean, sorry, how uh, I've de depicted that. Where the first two links are considered to be a previous life, the next uh, eight or so is this life, and then birth and old age sickness and death is coming into a new life, a next life. In the Buddha's teachings, again and again, he'll describe dependent origination as being helpful or that, that this is how we look at it. They're at the back, I think, yes. And you'll all need a handout. I don't know where they are. but And from that, he has a whole teaching on, you know, the importance of our actions in this life to lead to better rebirths, et cetera, et cetera. Very traditional view, many... Um, uh, you know, and it had it has its validity. There's also a view that's kind of within this lifetime. You can see all this, you know, this is just one, one birth and death. But the most helpful view, and the Buddha refers to this also in the teachings, is to see this as a moment-to-moment -moment model, that this process is happening over and over again. It's happening in a moment, you can have one of these cycles in the blink of an eye. You can have it in a period of a few minutes, or hours, or a day, many days. Anytime we hold on to something and create an identity around it. Your identity as a meditator, as a mother, or a father, or a child, as a good person, or a bad person, or a generous person, as a late person, or an impatient person. These are all births that we take up. And you can see how you can take those identities up and really inhabit them for a while and then something else happens and that completely disappears. You've forgotten it and you've inhabited some other birth. They can also happen on multiple levels. We can have many, many, many of these cycles happening at the same time. So different lengths of time, many at the same time. So it's incredibly complex. We, of course, don't need to figure all that out. That would be impossible. Again, it comes back to mindfulness. We wake up we, wherever we wake up and notice what's happening and see, can we understand this, given that we have this way of looking at our experience? So this is the most important way to look at it <clears throat> and to see it 
not as a string of cause and effect. This is not a teaching like a bunch of dominoes going click, 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 click. It's not like a clock where everything is, you know, this is, it's in 12 links, 12 hours, tick, tick, tick. There are some that happen in the past, some that happen all in a rush right now, some that overlap and repeat within themselves, um, and then some that do kind of fall like a, there is a, sometimes we can have the experience of them falling a little like a bunch of dominoes where it just goes, there's kind of a tumbling effect. But there's no um, set way that this will develop. It, it really is very fluid and very f flexible. And it's not causal. This isn't saying that ignorance causes volitional formations or volitional formations causes consciousness. What it's saying is they condition each other. And by that, the, the classic way the Buddha talked about it is when this is like this, that is like that. When this arises, that arises. When that ceases, this ceases. So they have a very intimate relationship, but they're not causing each other. Sometimes it can do, you know, there can be a causal effect, but you don't want to think of it in that way that's far too limiting. It really is this conditioning effect that's happening within each of the links. And also, it's traditionally um, depicted, well, a Buddha, he was just speaking about it, so he would just say this, then this, then this, then this. He would uh, say them as a, as a um, just in a line. But traditionally, they've been depicted as a circle, as I show here, because there is this sense of how there isn't a place from old age, sickness, and death, which is basically longhand for suffering. We just a new round of ignorance arises and we just keep going. But there's a real limitation in this depiction of a circle. It makes it seem, as I said, far too linear. It doesn't um, uh, refer to all of the feedback loops. And there's um, a number of different books you can get on this. And one of them, it's very helpful, and these are free books, so they're available online. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, The Shape of Suffering talks about them as being more like fractals. And he has a whole section where he talks about this mathematical concept of fractals, which I'm certainly no expert on. But basically, it's you know one uh, image. If you go into a section of it, that same image is replicated. And you go into that, and it's replicated again. So whatever level, you're just sort of diving in. Again, that kind of wormhole effect. And that, that they're all interrelated. You can pull in and out or go this way or that way, and, and somehow they're all interrelated. This is a much more helpful way of looking at this and to know that there can be, within this, positive feedback loops where something gets uh, exacerbated and, and really strengthened, and negative feedback loops where something, if we change it, it actually diminishes or goes away. And you know this can be both good or bad, depending on what it is that's being cultivated. But it's inherently unstable. Again, not to think of it like a clock ticking around. Because of the very nature of things, that they're impermanent, the, um, this too is full of impermanent experiences. So it's not going to be or create a solid sense of reality. We can have that ignorant view about things, that, that it's solid or permanent, that we're solid and permanent, that I always am late or impatient or fearful. But this is not what it's pointing to. It's really pointing to a very dynamic um, experience that has, as I said, multiple layers in it and multiple timings and, and things, you know, part of the challenge always was for me is I would find things repeated, you know, like perception is here and it's here and consciousness appears about three different times and how does that make sense? Well, the Buddha didn't have an Excel spreadsheet to map this out on or, a, you know, access database or whatever. He was, it was, he was just looking in his mind and, and tracking his experience and I think it's, it's both, 
you know, that. But, I mean, at the same time, he was brilliant to, to really track his experience in this level of detail and see this, this um, causal nature, this conditioned nature of it. But it also points to the mystery. I mean, this body-mind thing, is, as much as we can know it directly, there is a level of mysteriousness to it, the, the complexity of it. And this just acknowledges that. So, so don't ever think of it as kind of derivative or simplistic. It's not. It's, it's very complex. There's actually a, a great interchange in the teachings where Ananda, who was the Buddha's main disciple, um, <clears throat> and often a little bit of a fall guy. He was kind of like the everyman who asked the questions that we probably would have asked. And he comes to the Buddha and says, oh, Lord, you know, I've looked at this dependent origination and it seems to me as simple and as clear as can be. And he's probably thinking the Buddha would say, great, Ananda, I'm glad you understand it. And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, do not say that. This dependent origination is complex and deep. And, you know, you should never say that it's simple and easy to understand. And so, okay, I'll go back and look a bit more. So to just, if, if at the end of today you still don't understand it, I won't take full responsibility because it is complex. Um, and I don't say I fully understand it either. I'm always learning in, in preparing this day long. I, I learned a lot more about it just in looking at the different levels. So we're really just, as I said, going to be skimming the surface and hopefully um, you can continue with your own explication. So at the bottom of this sheet with the circle, I put some references. These are books that are a lot available online, um, and the, certainly the um, readings from the Pali Canon, they're all available. There's a great website, which I didn't put down there, Access to Insight, that has translations of all of these. Okay. Yes, I have in my thing, take questions. <laughs> Timing. My mind is wandering as I'm listening to you. To the wandering or wandering? Wandering to the societal level. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of all the difficulties a person has um, understanding their preconditions and trying to get out of their own set of ruts into a more um, true state of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But did the Buddha talk at all about how a society can totally. get into a set of totally. and, and have misconceived uh, uh, foundational assumptions? He talked, yes, in that book, uh, uh, Paiuto has a whole section where he talks about society and how it comes out of individual actions, though. It's not like we all glom together and do the same thing, but it's things like when the king doesn't take care of his subjects, they, they, they don't have enough food and therefore they steal, and once they start to steal, people don't feel safe. And yes, no, and that's an important thing about this. It's not just an individual. What's the name of that book? It's the first one on the list okay. there. Um, and it's, it, the, the Buddha actually used this kind of teaching dependent co-arising to explain all kinds of things, to explain, uh, just as you're saying, societal uh, experiences and, and kind of big picture um, understandings of the universe. So no, it, 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 it applies to everything animate is one of the ways I would look at it, I guess. I just said that, I don't know if it's completely true, but basically the human, human and animal experience, you know, and in the big picture as well as the small. But the Buddha is always, referring to the whole cosmos and putting it in that context. Has anybody written a book on how society can wake up and, and become aware of its false assumptions? <laughs> well, I think there's lots of books out about that. Um, using this particular theory, one person who's written quite interestingly about it is Joanna Macy. She, what is her book on this? Um, I have it in one of my quotes. Sacred Love and Sacred Self. Maybe it's that one, yeah. She, 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 Dependent origination was one of the Buddhist teachings that really woke her up and brought her to her whole understanding of um, interdependence. So she's written a lot about it. I don't know how much it goes to what you're speaking about. But So any other questions? Yes. I'm curious uh, about family of origin, mm -hmm. early childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. I kind of believe those are really 
form those. So yes. We, where would they fit in on this? Well, we'll go through it, and hopefully uh, that will become clear. But it's not like something just goes, oh, it's here. This is a process. So that experience of your family of origin would appear many times. And it, it's not like this is a static thing defining, you know, uh, some particular experience. You would, as I said, have many rounds of this that, that, but a lot would be in this second one, volitional formations, is uh, the Pali word is sankara, is all of our conditioned ways of being. It's really about the mind and our conditioned habit patterns. So it's a lot about, you know, you could say what the, the psyche, the, the, you know, how we've been formed through our past experiences. And so in traditional Buddhist thought, that would be a prior life formation, would you say, as opposed to... What would be? Uh, the the uh, condition, the volitional formation, is it in the uh, section of previous life, which personally I don't relate to. Yeah, and we don't have to. I'm not hardly going to talk about that today. Um, I'm more interested in this moment-to-moment -moment or within-this-lifetime model, and I think that's the most helpful. Okay, but the, the analogy would be um, to the volitional formations. Traditionally, it would be then previous life where it it could also be considered early life. Uh, totally. Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You could. I'm, I'm trying to put it together with your question. It doesn't quite map because, as I say, it's not. But yeah, this is all basically all of our conditioning, which, fam, fam, you know, all of the things we've learned about ourselves, the views we have, the opinions, all of that is pretty much in there. It. it appears in other places and it gets acted out, out of that in other places. So again, this sort of referential loop, looping happens. But that's the key one that you could almost say, I don't know whether you'd say personality is, that's in that area, Sankara's volitional form. It's a huge, huge area. And that's the other thing. So like volitional formations is, includes everything in our kind of mental realm. And some of the others, like contact, is you know one moment. So they're they're not equally weighted. The, having them in a circle makes them look like they're all kind of again cluck cluck cluck. But it's not like that. It's like there's this whole area that includes all of our memories, all of our past experiences, and that's volitional formations. Yes. There are versions of the of the lakes that have only ten or even eight. From where? Uh, the uh, numerical discourses. Uh, oh, right, yes. Well, as I said, the Buddha used this teaching in a lot of different times uh, to, to, to teach different things. He used it specifically around this, and, and uh, you know, you can find very similar ones, but slightly different. But this is the one that I see most often. Um, you know, that's what the Paiuto has a, a, a whole section on all of the different times the Buddha uses, and they'll have a few of the links and it'll go off in some other different direction. Um, but this is the one that I see people most commonly refer to in, uh, around this whole area. But even in this, you know, and I'll probably do this later today, I'm going to glom together a few of them just to make it simpler for us to understand. So that's the other thing to say about it is this is what, how the Buddha depicted it. One, uh, in this DPP program, you know, one of the exercises we've had people do is, you know, make up your own. You know, it, it, it is just trying to depict something that we can all know. And we might all say, well, you know, I don't understand this. I would really say, and that, you know, in the Buddha, for me, that's completely um, valid and relevant. It's not, uh, in teaching this, it's not, this is a list that you should remember and this is the way things are. You know, it's really, is this helpful? There are different versions. Maybe there's another one that might be more relevant, but this is the one that I've gotten the most familiar with and tend to teach from. Yes? So earlier you said something like you have a choice to maybe do something mm -hmm. skillful. And the question I have is, 
do you really have a choice or is it just causes and conditions coming together at that point that allow that activity and you really don't have a choice yeah. as I understand. So this is a great question, the question of do we have a choice or is it causes and conditions. We'll get to that because this is key. Um, but remember, if I, I, I'm sure I'm going to address it directly, um, but I don't want to go into that right now. But it is, it's totally key. I believe we have a choice, just to put my bias out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think what we'll do now is um, take a short break, because you've been sitting here for an hour or so, and then come back and we'll start to look at, uh, look at some of this more precisely. So we'll take about a 10-minute break. Whoever's ringing the bell, if you could ring it at about um, 10.40, and we'll come back here at 10.45. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.